1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today, I have the author of Partners or Rivals, Power and Latino, Black and White Relations in the 21st Century. The book is published by the University of Virginia Press, and the author is Bettina Wilkinson. Bettina, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing well. Thank you.
1: Yeah, such a... a Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today, I have the author of Partners or Rivals, Power and Latino, Black and White Relations in the 21st Century. The book is published by the University of Virginia Press, and the author is Bettina Wilkinson. Bettina, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing well. Thank you.
1: Yeah, such a a pleasure to have read the book. This is a a book that has a particular connection to the stuff that I do, so I enjoyed it for that reason. But I think that uh, lots of others will enjoy it as well before we talk about it. Maybe you can just tell us just a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure. So um, I am an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Wake Forest University, and I've been here for about six years now.
1: Yeah, wonderful. It's, it's, um, this must be the, the result of, of six long years of work. There's just so much in the book to talk about. Let's start our conversation uh, with the illustration you offer at the beginning of the book. I wonder if you can sort of begin our our talk today by by explaining how the the killing of Trayvon Martin relates to this complex relationship between racial groups.
0: Sure. So uh, today, you know, we have Latinos being the largest minority group in the United States. Uh, they have outnumbered African Americans and. With a growing Latino population, we also have to recognize the diversity that exists within the Latino population, diversity in terms of skin tone, in terms of uh, immigrant status, as well as so many other different factors, like socioeconomic class and region and identity, um, how they identify themselves, and so on and so forth. And I wanted to begin the book with the Trayvon Martin a George Zimmerman incident because I think it really sheds light on the uh, complexity that we have today when it comes to race relations. So here we have, you know, not only, we're not talking just about whites and blacks and whether they get along or not. We have a new group, Latinos, and who are now the largest minority group. And uh, we're seeing that you know, sometimes whites and blacks receive them positively and view them positively, and other times that they do not. Uh, but what's interesting with the Trayvon Martin incident is that George Zimmerman, someone who can identify as Latino because his mom is of um, is uh, from central from South America, and um, whose dad, a white man, actually said he was Latino, and his mom is uh, from another country, who actually you know, has a name like George Zimmerman, um, whom many would not identify as a Latino uh, name, and therefore in that sense would not be very clear as to whether he is Latino or not. So he gets into this altercation with Trayvon Martin, which unfortunately results in Trayvon Martin's death. And so after this, um, after the incident as well, the death of Trayvon Martin, as well as several court rulings, um, we have seen Protests occur among African-Americans, whites, Latinos, and other groups in response to court rulings, as well as just shedding light on the racial tensions that exist between whites, blacks, and Latinos as well.
1: Now, as you just suggest, um, these relationships are are complex and multifaceted, um, perhaps in ways that scholars have, have not fully incorporated into their analysis. So is it right to say that the the tradition has been to study racial and ethnic relationships in pairs, uh, comparing uh, white attitudes to black attitudes or white to Latino? Um, is, is that a fair assertion? I, and I guess if that's if, if that is part of the tradition, what are the limits of this approach?
0: So yes, I would say that for many, many decades, we've really focused on white and black attitudes and race relations, you know, just because we've just had those as the main, you know, racial groups in the United States. And then with the growing population of Latinos, we've seen, you know, more research done on black, brown, um, you know, racial attitudes and race relations overall. But there really hasn't been much research that just focuses on the three groups. Um, you know, you have whites who have responded uh, quite strongly in favor or and also and against uh, a growing immigrant population in this country. And then you also have um, African Americans responding positively to Latinos viewing them as a minority who struggles just like them, but then also as you know a group that is creating a threat and taking jobs and uh, you know pulling away political attention from them.
1: Now you you offer an, a new approach and in many ways a response to this um, this gap in the literature and you offer a theory as well and you, you call this theory. The Triangular Theory of context, Contact, Context, and Identification. And, and, and thankfully, uh, you use an acronym uh, throughout the book, uh, <laughs> TTCCI, so you don't have to spell that long theory out each time. Would you explain this theory to us?
0: Sure. So, in, in essence, it argues that you know, there are unequal levels of power that exist across and among Latinos, blacks, and whites in this country. Uh, And these, you know, this inequality in terms of power, I guess, can create this us versus them mentality among groups. But I would say that this mentality, though, is greatly moderated by uh, the social networks that individuals have with each other. um, The sense of clout that they have, the sense of clout created by racial, economic and political context that they are in and then their sense of identification, the sense of uh, identification that they have with members of their own group as well as with others. I would say that those are the three main categories of factors that can really influence individuals to view others as partners or rivals.
1: Yeah, and, and you know this this uh, theory that you offer is inherently complicated, and, and I can imagine in writing the book, this must have felt a bit like juggling where you you have these you have these three groups that, that have their individual characteristics, but then they relate both internally and also externally, but not externally just to a single other group, to multiple groups. It, the way you build this, I think, is just very interesting. And you use a lot of quantitative as well as qualitative data to explore the theory. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk to us um, about where you drew this extensive quantitative data and where you did, uh, where you went to collect the qualitative components of the book?
0: So the um, quantitative data comes from national survey data that um, has already been collected. The 2004 National Politics Survey, which has a really large sample of African Americans, uh, whites, and Latinos, and then of course the 2006 Latino National Survey, which has a uh, whopping 8,636 Latinos um, as the survey respondents, and then the 2010 Cooperative Congressional Election uh, Study. I uh, obtained and bought data uh, from that survey. One thing I did want to add, Heath, is that actually another main contribution of this book is that I examine what whites, blacks, Latinos think of each other relative also to what they think of members of their own group. And so one thing that I have always found interesting is that very few, very little research really examines what, let's say, African-Americans think of Latinos relative to what they think of African-Americans. So this kind of taps into, okay, if you don't have a lot in common with um, Latinos, what does that really mean? If we know that African-Americans, let's say, have a lot in common with other African-Americans, but not so much with Latinos, or have a lot of competition with other African-Americans and not so much with Latinos, that comparative approach, I think, really sheds light on and gives us a better comprehensive understanding of racial attitudes and race relations today.
1: Yeah, and what about the qualitative component of this?
0: So the qualitative uh, data was obtained from focus groups of whites, blacks, and Latinos, Um, focus groups conducted in New Orleans, uh, those three groups.
1: Yeah, and, you know, as you talk about this, I'm sure that those that are listening, uh, you know, would just begin to develop some, you know, hypotheses in your mind. Well, if, you know, if a a group, an individual in a group uh, views those within their group a certain way, maybe that would change. Um, You must have had lots of opportunities to be surprised and and I would imagine even shocked by what you found uh, based upon your approach. I wanted to give you the chance to talk a little bit about this. Um, what shocked you about the ways that these three racial and ethnic groups view each other?
0: So, I guess one main finding is that all the groups, whites, blacks, Latinos, sense greater closeness and competition with members of their own racial group than others. Uh, that was interesting to me. Uh, another major finding that I think is very interesting, very relevant, very uh, prominent, is the fact that I found strong support for um, the fact that threat, specifically economic and racial threat, greatly explains African American and Latino attitudes toward each other. So when African Americans and Latinos feel economically threatened, given you know the fact that they're in an environment with a high unemployment rate or a high poverty rate, they are less likely to perceive the other minority group, whether it be African Americans or Latinos, in a positive way and perceive more competition with that other group. And then lastly, um, a major finding was the fact that actually threat doesn't really explain white attitudes in the same way that it explains black and Latino attitudes. Um, For instance, whites that are in a district, congressional district representative by a Latino or an African-American are more likely to perceive commonality with the Latino if they're represented by a Latino or with, the African, with African-Americans if they are represented by an African-American.
1: And, and let me also say that, that you make very clear and you explain why you, you did not include Asian-Americans in your analysis, and that's in the book, and you have a, a full uh, 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 reason why that that makes sense in in your approach another group that uh, um, you can imagine another book written maybe you're already working on that one where you fold that the the fourth uh group into this now much of what you just talked about is is focused on the the quantitative approach that you took now when you went and and conducted the focus groups, um did you hear the same things from the people face to face this this allows us to sort of um you know, look sort of into the the process of in in some ways. So, in the focus groups, were the findings largely consistent with what you found statistically, or did you find some nuance there?
0: Sure. So, the the purpose of the focus groups were really kind of to shed light on some of the complex, um, unclear findings, perplexing findings that I had at the um, you know, with the quantitative data analysis, and also to look. Um, specifically at the South, you know, to what extent do we find similar things in the South? You know, New Orleans, a southern city with a long history of white-black, you know, tensions similar to many other southern cities. And interestingly, I did find um, that for African Americans, just like in the quantitative findings, when African Americans felt economically threatened, racially threatened, politically threatened. They were more likely to um, re- regard Latinos in a very negative way. And what was interesting, though, is that I didn't, and this is just a you know limitation with the quantitative data analyses, um, one of the main reasons why African-Americans Regarded Latinos negatively, they would say is not because they don't like them per se, but it's because they feel that whites, you know, do not treat um, Latinos, do not treat African Americans in the same way that they treat Latinos, and they favor Latinos over African Americans when hiring them, when giving them places to live, that sort of thing. And so that is at the root of African Americans' negative views toward latinos and immigrants in that city
1: now i wonder when you step back from from this this rigorous examination that you did of the subject matter whether your findings leave you hopeful or or somewhat more pessimistic uh about the relationships between groups in this country what how did you leave the writing of this book feeling
0: <laughs> so um
1: Other than relieved that the book was completed and now published and out for the world to read.
0: Right. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, I would say, you know, both pessimistic and hopeful, Uh, pessimistic in the sense that, you know, are we going to have blacks and browns come together and join forces and live happily ever after? No, it's not that simple. You know, Um, and the likelihood that blacks and Latinos, I would say, come together and form coalitions is not that great. Relative to the likelihood they would form coalitions with whites. But at the same time, I think because we had such I had such a, a strong education that threat plays such a big role in black and Latino attitudes, I would say that there are things that can be done, you know policy wise, that could decrease the likelihood that these tensions exist and increase the likelihood of these sorts of alliances forming. Forming. So I would say, you know, turning to uh, economic policies that we have in these countries, they can play a big role in, you know, the future of race relations across groups. And,
1: and what else? It, it, the, the book sort of seems to, to beg for some uh, uh, solutions uh, to, to um, apply what you found uh, to either policymaking or not even policymaking, but to things like how schools are organized and, and how education is, is run. Um, What kind of recommendations uh, do you have at the the end of the book? Is not mainly about making recommendations, but are there any takeaways that that you might offer to to make these uh, relationships work a little better?
0: Sure. Uh, I mean, I would say, for instance, if we were to have comprehensive immigration reform, that would help, um, you know, alleviate some of these uh, tensions that Latinos may have of blacks, blacks may have of Latinos. But then also, you know, increasing the minimum wage, improving our education system at the national level, um, increasing the employment rate, you know, having a low unemployment rate in this country, uh, really focusing on all racial and ethnic groups and their status and their ability to thrive in this country socioeconomically and in so many other ways. That, I think, would play a big role in the likelihood that race relations improve.
1: Yeah, and, and maybe just to wrap up, we're we're in the midst of a presidential election where where many of the sort of the, the topics that you're focused on in the book are, are maybe they're sitting a little bit in, in the background, but will only get more prominent as as we go. Uh do you have a new project that is related at all to, to the things that we're reading about the the current election? Or do you have any thoughts about how one might apply what you found to uh, congressional candidates trying to figure out how to put together electoral coalitions.
0: Um, so <laughs> that's actually a great point. Um, no, not right now. I'm still brainstorming about you know the uh, these sorts of topics and how I could apply it to elections. Um, I have a my ne- my second book project. My next book project really is focusing on uh, race and media issues, and so how negative media portrayals of blacks, Latinos, and whites affects Uh, each other's views of, you know, their criminality. But to touch upon your question, um, I would say that, that yes, I mean, you know, someone who, like Donald Trump, who takes an anti-immigrant, anti-Mexican rhetoric, who has said quite offensive things about racial and ethnic groups and women in this country, actually has the potential, just by the things that he's saying that are coming out of his mouth, to actually increase the likelihood the coalitions form... To vote against him <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and so and so in that sense that is promising um, but at the same time, the reason why individuals would vote against him may not necessarily be because they're forming alliances because they have things in common or you know they um, you know necessarily but but certain rhetoric actually you know I think plays a role in highlighting individuals' Minority status and their, their perception that they are underprivileged and they are discriminated against. And that can play a big role in increasing the likelihood that, you know, individuals will come together. So.
1: Again, the book is, yeah, the, par- the, the, the book is Partners or Rivals Power and Latino, Black, and White Relations in the 21st Century, published by the University of Virginia Press. The author who uh, I've been talking to, Bettina Wilkinson, thank you so much for your time today.
0: Thank you so much.